got the sun in my eyes I can't shake this feeling Change has got to come And you turn to me with my confirmation You said one foot in front of the other Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2012 September edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host for another exciting year of VOE. We have a compelling and diversified lineup for you this year as we take a look at the issues that matter most to our NSA members. We'll touch on a variety of topics, and in everything we do, the focus will be on you, the working professional speaker, in hopes that we can bring you something of value and relevance. The challenge is that there are many of yous out there, many with different business models and, more importantly, different goals. So our job is to mix it up a bit, present a variety of viewpoints on a variety of topics, perhaps even go after a few sacred cows. Your job is to find what works for you. Our first guest has done just that. CSP CPAE Hall of Fame speaker Chad Hymas has built a tremendously successful speaking business. And in this interview, he shares how he did it. We'll also learn how he manages his staff how in one year they sold over one million copies of a self-published book, and how he's done all of this without compromising the values that matter most to him. Join me now as Chad Hymas tells us how he did it. Tell us specifically in the early stages when you were launching your speaking business, what were the things that you were doing to promote it? Theo, what I did is I went to people that knew me, which are not your typical meeting planner uh, people. And so all I did was this. My church let me speak in church. Okay. And that's number one. Um, some landscapers, because that's the business that I was in, let me go to their landscaping companies and share a message, just briefly. My wife worked for an attorney that had 120 people in that attorney's office. Um, and this was eight years prior, so Shondell hadn't worked there since we started having children. Well, we called them up, not to pay me at all, just Chad's sharing. So I, I called the people that knew me and started to get in and prepared myself for those events to try and be what I saw at NSA. When I saw Jeannie Robertson on the platform last night, when I saw Art Berg on the platform, when I saw these people on the platform, I didn't want to take their stories, but I wanted to take their stage presence mm -hmm. and develop it. Art Berg said this to me. He said, you've seen all these artists on the stage. Now go take your crayons and be your own. Draw your own picture. That's what I've tried to do every NSA convention. Watch the people on the platform, and lo and behold, um, things will come to you in that direction. And I got to be on the NSA platform two years ago. What a highlight of my career, of my life. Didn't get paid for it either, but one of the <laughs> highlights of my, I mean, one of the highlights of my career was being on the NSA platform. So Let's go back. So you started out by calling the people in your circle. That I knew. That you knew. Yeah, that I, I, didn't, I didn't call meeting planners because I didn't feel comfortable with that. And then I developed a, I developed a one sheet, a brochure and pass it out so everybody and their dog knew this is what Chad is doing now. Kind of like I did in the landscape. I wanted everybody to know that I mowed lawns and I fixed sprinklers. You need some good service, you call me up. So I'll tell you what I did. I took people's brochures from NSA. I looked up the Hall of Fame speakers and I looked up their websites and I created my website, my one sheet, to look as good if not better than theirs. Here's the deal. I'm not near as qualified, and I don't have the experience that Mark Sanborn has or that other 
speakers have that I was looking up to and that I still look up to. But when I got the opportunity, I dang well better deliver as good as Mark Sanborn or as good as I possibly can to qualify myself for what I made myself look like on that brochure or that website. Right? So that's the catch. That is that is the catch. And so I I practiced in front of the mirror, not not memorizing words, being who I wanted to be, which is unrehearsed. I didn't want to be rehearsed or that's just my my system or my, my style. And watching videotapes. When I say I watch videotapes, I watched them ten, twelve hours a day. I mean I was really in a rut then. I mean, I didn't really go out and push in my wheelchair. I was kind of I just I watched and I made notes and that's when I learned how to type and and because I wasn't writing very good back then and, and, and all that. so not only was it good therapy for me uh, in the speaker business but good physically as well to type and write which would be which would be skills that I would later use in, in the speaker business. So. Today now you mentioned that the four ladies that work in your office they they're basically managing inbound calls. Every one of them, excuse me, every one of them have a different different responsibility. Uh, one, one manages inbound calls. If any calls come in, goes to Lizetta. Yeah, uh, the other three have different responsibilities. So I've got I've got four, and I didn't hire them all at once. I did everything myself in the beginning. Now I have one job. Uh, my job is to focus on who's next and make sure that that is customized for them. And my other job is my health. Mm. Um, I watch what goes in very very closely. Um, I want to stay in good health. Watch what I drink. I watch what I eat. And so those, that's my two jobs, the, the airfare, the, the transportation, the, everything that goes along with the speaking, the newsletters, the blogs. I don't do my own social media. Now Randy Gage is going to have a fit because he totally disagrees with that concept. Love Randy, and we visit about this all the time, but I don't even do my own social media. Um, I just don't have the time. You know, it takes me two hours to get dressed by myself that's, and, and an hour and 15 minutes to get undressed. I need to focus on that stuff. That's exercise for me. And so I don't have time to really get on the computer. I want to focus on the client that I have next. And, and we're moving so much that i got to focus on that. What are your expectations for your staff? And how, and how have you defined their roles? Expectations are I allow myself. I, I let, they, they know that I'm accountable to me. To, if I'm not healthy, the, they're, they're hurting as well because I'm not on the road. And so um, I hold myself accountable. I um, hold them accountable to the responsibilities listed on their responsibility sheet. All four gals have responsibilities. They're, they should be busy, busy 40 plus hours a week. Um, so I hold them accountable to that. And then we're allowed to hold each other accountable to those, to those. So if I get sick, you know, it's not that they're mad at me, but what did I do that got me sick? What happened? Is it did I catch a bug from somebody else? Did I not wear my hat on the plane? Did I not stay warm? Did I not eat or drink right? What did I do? Uh, and so accountability is a big piece of that. Do your, do your people have sales quotas? Do they have conversion quotas? Do you have expectations in terms of how they convert it? Yeah, calls? we have goals. We have goals. Um, are you asking for detail? How do you measure this? How do you how do you sure. measure how effective your staff is? We have several goals that we that we that we implement every month that apply to our strategic plan for the year. Okay, so we have a year to two year plan, and those goals are centered around that which would pertain to social media followings, newsletter followers, uh, how many people are involved in the HIMAS round, Leadership Roundtable group, um, how many bookings are we doing per year. Those are all part of the goals. And book sales um, is another goal. So all those pertain to a bonus system. I, um, I pay my staff a salary, and they're paid bonuses on each of those categories. I give the girls so much per every book sold even if I sell it in the back of the room they get a percentage of that they also get a percentage of, of if we hit our goal of bookings they get an additional bonus for that and once we hit our annual goal for bookings not not 
I don't, I don't count the funds coming in. I don't care about that. I just want to know what they did for the month, productive-wise. I don't wait to get paid on that engagement. But once we hit that goal, for the annual bookings, they get a very, very lucrative bonus check. So I, I've staggered it out that way. Um, they also get a bonus based on if we hit our followers for the month, our YouTube followers and our Facebook followers, because they're working on social media. They're working on posting. I don't have time to post all these, so I just send them the pictures. And they are, it's their job to write up things that are controversial, that go along with what, what, what we believe in our office, as far as our values are, to write things that will get comments back, and to ask for people's comments back, and to send people to those, those, those YouTube places and those, those social media places. I don't have time to follow and to, I, let me see, I don't want to devote my time to that. Fair enough. Um, Chad, you, you call these bonuses. It sounds like you've almost created a profit-sharing program for your people. Yeah, yeah. but Performance-based profit-sharing. Pro yeah, they, so they get a base salary, and it's performance-based profit-sharing. And at the end of the year, so they'll get another bonus. December 7th or 8th is usually when that's paid out. Some, during the holiday, they will get a Christmas bonus. So they get a bonus at the end of every month based on their performance for the month. They get a bonus once we hit the bookings for the year. And then I start that over again right then and there. I don't wait till January 1st. So we'll, we'll, we'll start that number right over, right then and there. So if they hit it in October for the number of bookings that we're trying to do on a rotation, boom, they get paid that very day. Check gets written to them right then and there. Um, Tax-free. That checks. Ta I'll pay the taxes on it. They get that right then and there. And then I'll pay them a bonus December 7th or 8th based on the annual, total annual sales, our, our, our net income in the office. They'll get a bonus check on that. So they all have an incentive to work hard, to be part of the team long-term. I don't want to replace anybody. I don't want to re I'd rather, I, I just, it's harder to train somebody. To, I want somebody that, I want my best fans in my office. My best fans, hire my best fans to be in my office. Now, do they all work in one office? Do they work remotely? How I've got three in the office. I have an office that we just finished. Uh, other than that, we were working in the basement of my home in the biggest bedroom downstairs. So three of them work in the office, and one of them works full-time from her home. But you've now moved your business out of your home? Out of my home, yeah. Yeah, business out of the home. We had... Uh, we, I, I gave the girls, I gave the girls a goal. We launched my first book, October third last year, two thousand and eleven. My goal was to sell five to ten thousand books. The girls sold that in the first week. Their incentive, I gave them each a quarter of a book, a quarter book. Not, not if you sold, you get a quarter. We, everybody gets a quarter for every book sold, because we got shipping and so I thought ten thousand books would be a lot. The girls sold. By December 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve, we took, they'd sold almost seven figures in book volume sales. So that was enough to build a warehouse. I'm not going to pay somebody else to, I mean, we could build a warehouse with that, build an office with that. And so now they're all moved outside. The office just was done last month. Um, and, and then they all got paid their bonus on those books sold. They were given an incentive. We would have never done that. I, and I didn't plan on selling that. I, I, I pre-bought pre 5,000 books. Did, did you know if you buy 500,000 books, you can get them for like 23 cents a pop? 500,000? Yeah. But they sold into the seven figures. They did more than that. It was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Never been done. Never been done. It was just absolutely. And I'm not, again, how I'm not did, saying. How did they do it, Chad? They went back to, again, this is a process. We're not in any bookstores. It's self-published. That's what's amazing. It's, I still haven't sold it because I'm having so much fun with this book because now I can go to New York and I can go to any one of the major houses and, and there will be some cons with that as well. Um, but but we're, that's not what this is about. The pros to this are all the girls did was they went to the people 
the landscapers that knew me. They went to the lawyers that my wife worked for as a paralegal. All they did was went to my past clients that knew me for the past 10 years and offered them discounted rates for buying thousands of books and paying the girls a minimum, a minimum part of that structure. They were, in, they were incentivized to, to do that. And so, they, so the book's not sold over a million copies because it's a great book. The book is sold over a million copies because we went to people that knew me and they decided to buy for their employees. These are all the clients that I've had over the last 10 years. And they bought the book and bought it for all their people at discounted rates. So I didn't sell my books at a, at a retail cost, all of them. Of course, we did sell a bunch of retail, but, but more than 85% were sold at a discounted wholesale cost um, where profit was still made. And then the, I'd rather have my, and others that are listening to this would disagree with that, uh, that, that, that be better to sell less volume and I'm cool with that too. I'm fine with that. Just because this is what Chad Hymas did doesn't mean it's the right way. You got to take what works for you. I personally wanted to have my message into a million hands after I realized it was possible. I realized I was setting my goals too low. I fear that's what a lot of people do that are listening to this. Set their goals too Absolutely. low? Absolutely. Set them way too low. So your initial goal was 5,000. Yeah. And here I am, a goal setter. And on October 3rd, a year ago, I set my goal. Girls, I want to get 5,000 books out in this pre-launch. Let's get a good, you know, 20,000 is the best seller. Let's get five. Let's do a quarter of that. And they blew it away. I mean, they, if, you're a, if a home runs 500 yards, they hit that sucker 5,000 yards. So if that's the ratio. Couldn't have been more proud of them. I didn't do it. Remember, I told you I have two jobs. Selling books is not one of my jobs. That's their job. That is their job. So I can't take credit for writing the good book. Because I didn't write a good book, I, um, I, 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 I think the book is decent. My uh, creative editor Tom Contrell did a marvelous job in, in, in what what he did with that book before we it ever left my hands, and now we have it in a million hands. No amount of money, and no bookings, will compensate for failure in my home. Mm. I want to be the best husband I can be because I wasn't at one time after I became paralyzed. Mm. I want to be the best husband that I can be. Many people in our business, sadly, um, go through that, 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 that paralysis. I'd rather break my neck. Mm-hmm. I would rather break my neck, I, uh, uh, which is what I did. I'm cool with that. I, I don't even go into the new office. I don't want to go into the office. It's not my job. Uh, I, I, I want to go to the kids' school. I want to be at parent-teacher conferences when I'm there. And I will not miss a high school basketball game for anything. Uh, my kids are now a freshman. My oldest is a freshman in high school. I'm not going to miss a game, Theo. I'm not going to do it. Um, no, remember, no success. So I've, we've changed that philosophy and had to change the structure around the office because every Tuesday and Thursday during the months of November, December, January, and February, Chad Hymas will be in Salt Lake City. End of story. Um, during those four months, Tuesdays and Thursdays are game days. Got to be there. So things are changing. You have to evolve. So. And you live by the rules you set. Have to. Yeah, some, some things sh- should change. But your values should never, ever change. And one of my values, well, I'll just share them with you. God, country, family, and friends. Don't you ever ask me to change it. But if you want me to have more friends, you can have me change my behavior or my attitude or even my belief system to have more friends. Because my friends are one of my values. Behavior, belief, and attitude, well, those are things that can change. Behaviors can change. Even my beliefs can change. Attitude should be changing regularly. But my values should never, ever change. God, country, family, and friends. I'm not changing that. In our next interview, we sit down with NSA board member, CSP, CPA, Linda Keith, 
aka the certified playful accountant, as she describes what she did when her target market tanked. Linda, what to do when your target market tanks? What in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, we, we often hear at NSA that it's a good idea to have a niche. And that the tighter your niche, you know, the more successful you can be. You can market to those people. You know what they read. You can speak at their associations. And so the question is, what do you do when what was a really good, deep, healthy niche? What do you do when that dries up all of a sudden? That happened to me because the recession really hit banking, and banking happens to be my niche. Now, it was community banking, so you'd think, okay, there's community banks all over the country, you know, you got the geographic range, you got all sizes, so you'd think that would be broad enough, but that entire industry took a hit. And as the banks tried to protect and preserve their capital, they cut their training budget. And golly, that's where I live, is the bank training budget. So what'd you do about it? Well, at first, of course, I um, threw up my hands and pulled out my hair a little bit. Uh, but then I thought, well, wait a minute. Are there any parts of the niche that are still okay? And it turns out that in banking, there are two. Agricultural lending has been fine throughout the recession. And private banking, lending to wealthy individuals, actually stayed pretty well as, as well. So I looked at those and I said, all right, well, do I have any clients in those niches? And in fact, I do. And I have really happy and loyal clients. I just never had capitalized on that because I had plenty of work. So when you don't have plenty of work, you figure out what's still working and then you can go after that. So as an example, Northwest Farm Credit Services, an ag lending organization I've worked with for 16 years. They love me they have me back every year. Well, there are farm credit organizations throughout the entire country, and they do talk to each other. So I proactively went to my client that was delighted with me and said, who else could I talk to? And it took about two years, really, to sort of repenetrate the rest of this market because it takes time. But now we've got five um, farm credit organizations that we do work with every year, and we're starting to do open enrollment programs. If you're a farm credit organization and you only have five new hires, so you really don't need to be back again, okay, we'll get five from you and five from the one in the next state and five from over here, and we're actually making more money doing the open enrollment sessions in the ag lending sector than we actually were in just doing in-house training for one organization. So you've niched within your niche. I've absolutely niched, but I picked it. I had to really look at what sub-niche, if you will. Right. So in fairness, though, it, it wasn't so much that you picked it. It's kind of what was left, right? I mean, you looked at, you <laughs> looked at your, your niche that was struggling. You know, overall, the industry where you had focused your energies for all these years was in trouble. Yes. But within that industry, there were still companies and sectors that were doing well. And then you looked at those sectors, and you really directed your focus towards them. And I then had to do more outbound marketing. I mean, when your calendar is pretty full because of referrals and your reputation, you quit doing some of the things you used to do, you know, ask for referrals and follow up on those and so forth. And so I not only had to identify what would still work, but then I had to almost go back to basics in those areas. And I'll also tell you, I wasn't sure what would work, so I actually went after five different things. Two of them have taken off like crazy. 
So I wasn't sure which piece would work, but I went to work on five. What were the five pieces? So agricultural lending was one, and private banking within the lending space. Then I also had developed a lender's online training course. Uh, Actually, it's 30 courses. But my clients were waiting for that, and yet when I had it done, their, their budget had gone. So we spent more time developing content and starting to push that out with internet marketing. I also started doing presentations for continuing professional education for CPAs. Friend of mine has one of those firms. He says, Linda, I'm so glad banking is tanked because now finally I can get you to come do some (laughs) stuff with me, right? right? So I gave that a shot and it actually brings in some nice passive income, but not a huge amount. And then the last piece, which I did develop but haven't really pursued, is a series of presentations I could do at banking and credit union associations. I've got it developed, it's well received, but now that the other things have really taken off, I'm probably not gonna take the time to market out to the associations because the other things working so well. So your strategic plan was you looked at your existing business. Within my within your, your defined niche, you identified five potential areas to um, to go back to the basics as you described, to, to uh, market to those niches, and then those five niches within the niche you found two that really took off and that's where you spent your time and effort. That's exactly right and there's two of them that I that I'm that aren't taking off as fast but are still worthy of my attention and then there's the fifth one that's in the wings it's still in my back pocket but I'm not putting energy to that because I now know which of those five if I put energy to is it going to give me some velocity. So it sounds like any one of the five, if they had taken off, you would have been content to work in. You just, you hedged your bet, as it were. You looked at the different possibilities, and then these two hit. Yes, and they still, all five were congruent. They were related to banking in some way. Even the presentations I do to CPAs are how to help their clients get their business loans. So they still had a connection. So it wasn't so much that you had to reinvent yourself. You just... You looked within your core business, where your strengths were, and you identified the areas of opportunity. I really did not reinvent myself. I just used parts of myself that weren't fully utilized. Join me now as we sit down with the creatively comedic Rob Peck. Do you want to hear my main credo, Theo? What's your main credo, Mainly because I just wanted to say credo and Theo in the same (laughs) sentence. You got them in. I did. Creativity is work done playfully. Okay. And there's a real way in which creativity is inventive. It's like the basic question is, what if? Comedy, on the other hand, is sort of inventive and impish. It's more like, why not? And I'll give you an example of the kind of creativity that I think asks the question, what if? And it's really a great illustration of inventiveness. I knew a guy who was a classically trained musician. He had car problems. He was very good with musical instruments, lousy under the hood. So he brought it into a garage. He had to wait. The guy who was working on the car dropped a wrench. Jim Turner's the name of the musician. Jim Turner heard the wrench fall. Now he was listening to what everybody else was listening to, but he was hearing what nobody else heard. He heard the birth of a potential musical instrument. So he goes up to the garage mechanic and he says, I know it's a crazy thing to ask, but could you drop the wrench again? And the guy's like, don't worry, I probably will. You know, I'm like butterfingers. Just says, stick no, around, no. right? He says, no, no, really, just, just right now from about the same height, could you drop it again? So the guy rolls his eyes and drops it. He says, wow, he says, do you have other wrenches? He says, buddy, I'm an auto mechanic. I got lots of wrenches. He says, could, could, 
can I see one of the other wrenches? He says, you want a little one or a big one? He says, how about a big one? He goes, all right, this is the biggest wrench I got. He says, let me guess. You want me to drop this one on my foot? He says, no, no, not on your foot. Just drop it on the, on the floor. He drops it. And then gradually, he and the garage mechanic have a blast for about three or four minutes just fooling around with different sound effects. But then he says, tonight, he says, when everybody closes down, could I come back and try to create a kind of instrument out of the wrenches? And if you want, you can invite any of your people to stay and hang around and see it. Come 6 o'clock, Jim Turner has erected a kind of, almost like a little hanging chimes of wrenches. And if he taps them in a certain way, he gets all different musical tonalities. And then, on purpose, at various points, he drops wrenches. And the result was this really charming and apparently wildly received, just fun little improvised jazz. But I just like the kind of human innovation spirit that that story epitomizes. It really illustrates the kind of just innovation that's such a cool part of the human spirit. And in this case, that's what it is. Creativity is like if you're a visual person, it's looking at what everybody else is looking at but seeing what nobody else sees. And in Jim Turner's case, it was listening to what everybody else there was listening to, but somehow hearing. So one man's wrench is another man's Woolitzer, is that? There you go, there you go. I couldn't have said it with more alliteration myself. Now, there's uh, a way in which I was sharing with you that comedy is inventive and impish. It kind of combines that kind of what if with why not. So a wonderful example is when John Schwartz, better known to us in NSA as Vinnie Varelli, played around with a couple of things that are just normal stuff. It's taking common phrases like what floats your boat, what's your cup of tea, and then working with a very tried and true comedy rhythm of one, two, three, with the third one being the way you kind of pull the rug out from under people. So at one point he says, I won't even try to do his Italian uh, accent, but he says, if that doesn't float your boat, if that doesn't, that's not your cup of tea, if that's not the name you give your baloney. <laughs> and just the sheer kind of off-the-wallness of it turned out to be very impish and actually got a great laugh from the audience. So the unexpected, the absurd, kind of the, yeah, the one... Just that be- impish yeah. sort of, you know, why not? All right. How have you used that in your material? Well, I I wanted to share with you just briefly before we go there something that I think could be helpful to people in terms of a general concept. I think that both creativity and comedy share dual catalysts, play and pressure. You know, I'm sure that a lot of us have experienced this, that in the days leading up to a presentation, we have all this eager excitement and we get this boost of adrenaline. And... The night before the presentation, you get a blast of what I call adrenaline, and it's just this tremendous fear of death. But both of them happen to be very motivating in terms of creativity and comedy. The fact that you are excited about something definitely jazzes you and gets all of your circuits kind of fired up, and frankly, the fact that you're afraid. Sometimes being afraid is a good sign. If you want to try to do something creative, you almost by its very nature have to tap courage. You have to be willing to go to that place where it's the unknown, otherwise there would be nothing created. It would be just what already exists. You asked me for an example in my uh, own life of where this shows up, and I think for me it mainly shows up with when something goes wrong. 
you know, I, as you know, juggle. For those of you in Radioland who don't know, right now, while I am talking to Theo, I am hovering precariously on a six-foot unicycle juggling seven razor-sharp machetes. If you don't hear any sounds, that's because I'm a very skillful juggler. But one of the things that uh, happens to me, of course, is I'm human and I'm going to drop and something's going to go wrong. And even things where, like, I used to do an act where I had a baton that I could set on fire at both ends. It was literally like burning the candle at both ends. And it was big enough that I could manipulate it between a couple of hand sticks. And I was working a Renaissance crowd that was really into Shakespeare. And I was leading up to this line from Macbeth where he's talking about out, out candles and, you know, uh, all these images of fire and stuff. And I want to lead up to this moment where I'm going to set the baton spinning and it makes like a giant circle of flame. Only on that particular day, apparently, I got a little cheap and didn't dip enough fuel in there. Or maybe it was really hot and condensation made a lot of the fuel disappear. But I get right up to my big line and I whip that baton and it's spinning around and both wicks go out. And it's like either going to be a big fizzle or I'm going to have to think fast on my feet. And I just looked at the audience and I said, made all the more dangerous by the giant trail of smoke. (laughs) And somehow just the fact that they knew I was in a predicament and that they saw that I kind of rose to the challenge by taking it light, by finding some way to just ad lib. I want to share with you two things that I think... Uh, are important about creativity just as a general concept. Failure is fertile soil for both discovery and distinction. I think there are two keys. One is the will to risk overcoming the fear of failure and its evil twin, the fear of looking foolish in public. And the second is the skill to be able to optimize clear lessons. You know, you asked me for another example from my own life. I used to do a juggling act in which I had a tennis racket. And I, back because I'm very old, uh, I was using a wooden racket. This was like in the 1930s. Anyway, I left the racket out of its little press that keeps the nylon and stuff tight. And by the time I got to this particular job, I'd been driving for five hours with the racket in a hatchback in the broiling sun. I go to hold up the racket and it is just warped beyond recognition. And the minute I hold it up, the audience cracks up. And then a little bell in my brain goes off. And I think, you know what? This time it was just an accident, but I'm going to get this into the act. And I think that part of what happens is to have that skill to sort of notice that when something goes wrong, there may be something even better here than what you set out to do. That little bell that goes off in your brain, that's what can take something that was a fluke and turn it into finesse. You performed at festivals. You did uh, street performance. Uh, those are some pretty tough environments. What lessons did you learn from, from those experiences that you've been able to translate to your speaking career? Well, there again, it was often the stuff that occurred totally spontaneously. It's like when spontaneity don't, serendipity do. But <laughs> things would happen, and you would just realize, wow, there's something here that wasn't what I planned. Most For me, most of creativity... It's not like a business plan. It's not like plan A. It's actually something that bombs or backfires and then how you back up from it and come up with a plan B or a plan C. So 
For example, one time my then wife and I were passing flaming torches around a volunteer, always used a woman for this particular part of the act, and she has excessive hairspray on. You can probably tell where this is going, Andros. To my horror, as the torch is not actually touching her head, but coming close enough that I see her hair start to smoke. And I know that any minute now, the hairstyle is just going to burst into flame. So I have to like immediately stop, try to find some way to like, you know, get this to not happen. And I have a whole bit, which is all now based on what kind of a husband would allow his wife to be up there in danger. Come on, buddy. This is your chance to be bold, to stand up here, to, to take charge, to spare her from any any harm. And it just ended up being a really funny moment. And then again, something that usually was replicable. So I think the real lesson here for speakers is is not only are you not afraid of the unexpected, you welcome the unexpected. You embrace it. You find a way to have the unexpected serve you in your program. Yeah, I have two little maxims. To err is human. To recover, divine. <laughs> and if necessity is the mother of invention, failure is the father. CSP John Crudelli from our Minnesota chapter has spoken to over 4,000 audiences over the course of a 25-year career. During this interview, he shares with us what he's learned about how and when to use stories. So John, you're one of the great storytellers. Talk to us about the difference between telling a story and actually bringing passion to that story. For me, bringing passion to a story is really coming from the center of my my life experience. To, To be able to look at an audience member and to not just think about what I want to tell them and get them to think, but come from a place within me, speaking to a place within them on who they may be able to become and be. And so to the extent that I'm able to uh, know more about myself and be more real is the extent that I can then, uh, I believe, speak to that same, same spot or place within somebody who's sitting in an audience. So you have an audience of people that are made up of, of individuals with life histories and life desires, life's wants, life's needs. And uh, to be able to say something that really resonates with the, the spirit, not just of what they think or feel, but what they need to believe to become more of who they were created to be. So John, take us through the, stru- uh, the structure and the strategy behind your stories. The, the structure of a story comes from two different ways. One is looking at what it is that I'd like to teach an audience and take them from that thought or that point and bring them to that place. Another place is to take a life experience that I've had and look for the messages that are in that life experience. And so uh, both ways work, yet in both cases we need to come back to a place which is in be- below our own belief systems, within our own desires or love. Love is, is seeking, I believe, what is the greatest good for another person. It's when we get out of what brings so much joy to us to what brings more meaning to them. And so we have, uh, I, I liken it to a, a projector, and we have the quartz halogen light in the projector, and we have the lens on the projector, and we have some kind of content that's between the light and the lens. And so if it's just what's on the content, it's, it's simply what it is that, that we think about something. It's the message. It could be a book report at that point. And it resonates then with what somebody else might think. 
But if you can get closer and closer to what is the light, the light inside of you, the light that's inside of your beliefs, the light that moves beyond what it is that you need for somebody, which is, I think, in our brokenness or insecurity, but in what we want for somebody, which is in our discoveries and what has been more grounding for us, and we can speak from that place in us, we go through what is that they think, and they go through what is what they just feel, but we actually get it centered in who they are. And passion, I believe, is the truth delivered through a lens or a heart of love. And that resonates with somebody. And so for us, when we hear a story or experience something and something inside of our heart or soul burns, it's resonating with something that's innately passionate or our truth. And I just encourage people to note those moments in their lives because it's from that place that if that story, that content, that idea can then be communicated, it's going to be communicated from that deepest place and impact and touch that deepest spot inside of someone who hears you. So, John, as speakers are looking to incorporate stories into their presentations, do you start with a point and then find a story to illustrate it, or do you start with a story and try to find the point within the story? Both lead to creativity. There are times when something happens to us or that we see that we go, wow, that, that, we keep thinking about it, and we'd like to develop that and expound upon that and embellish that into a story. And then there are times when we look at the points that we're making and we say, and this is how I typically write my, my, my speeches now. The way that I'll structure or write a speech is I'll get out a manila folder, I'll think about the audience, I'll think about the needs, I'll think about the objectives, I'll think about the goals of the meeting planner or the group. I look at what they want and then I look inside and I take it a little bit further and I say this is what I think goes even beyond what they want but what I believe those audience members may need based upon my lifetime of experience presenting. And so I look at the points, and here's my three points, my five points, here's the, the messaging that I plan to make. And then on the right-hand side of the manila folder, I start to coordinate in the stories that make that point. And to me, it's like dividing out a deck of cards. And you have your points in the left hand, and then you have your stories in the right hand. And so you make a point, and then you look at the story, and you tell a story, and you still don't have their attention, so you tell another story, and you bring humor in. And once you've grasped the audience in some way, you can and then layer in another point. And if you still have their attention, maybe you can go in with another point or some more messaging. And as soon as you see the attention starting to drift away, you bring in out of just a natural timing a story. Or you look for humor. You look for something that's in your repertoire. And at this point in my career anyways, and where I think that we want to arrive at for for those is that to say where is the audience in the journey of this speech with us and are we able to then reshuffle the deck as we go along based on what would be most appropriate for them in this moment and so we instead of just giving them us we are and or giving them a message we are adjusting the messaging and adjusting us based on the needs of the audience at that moment and we do the same thing with the stories that we have we grow and mature a story into what it needs and I I liken stories to rocks and rock tumblers that when placed in the sands of an audience, it smooths out the edges. And so over time, stories will grow and mature. And, and it's, it's for us to continue to explore and look for what's in those, those, uh, those pearls of, of, and gifts within a story and how that can then come most effectively to the audience to take them to a place that's going to be better and best for them. John, how do you establish what your points are in a presentation? 
the points for me are established based uh, on both the needs and the wants of the, the meeting planner or the audience. And then it goes back to, to what I believe is going to be in their best interest. You know, oftentimes I find myself with a youth audience. And when I find myself with a youth audience, there's a deep care and concern that I have for them to make choices that are going to benefit them for a lifetime. And I also have uh, some intolerance towards some of the choices that might not serve them well. And so, you know, I want to lovingly present ideas to them in a way that they can receive it. And so if I'm taking what might be an audience that, that may be resistant to an idea, we're going to have a speaker, he's going to be old, he's going to be boring, he's going to tell us what wrong with kids today's. If the school brought him in, it can't be any good. Then I need to look at creative ways to connect with them intellectually, emotionally, into their heart, their souls, their spirits, their needs, their brokenness, whatever it might be. And so in that, I'm going to continue to adjust the messaging based on some core goals of the school or the group or the organization or the association that brought me in. But I'm going to think about something more than just the goals of some behavior or some thought process. I want to think about some of the objectives that might serve this person in a greater and a deeper way of becoming more whole and more authentically themselves. And so these stories need to be evolved in such a way that they actually come from that same place. You just don't tell about what somebody did, you tell about who they are. And instead of just telling the story, you try to relive and re-experience and re-feel and come to the core of the beliefs of what's inside of that story and actually relive that story out loud in front of the audience. And actually, if you can, step out of the story and be in the audience and watch the story, watch yourself at the same time. Matter of fact, there's sometimes content that we deliver that we even have a hard time living up to. And we don't have the right to water it down just to what it is that we're capable of doing. We limit what we can teach. We limit who they can become. So we place ourselves in the audience to listen because we all want to aspire to that greater greatness of who we can become. But we have to come in all times through a heart of love out of a secure place so that we can share deeply into others. And the stories are framed around that. They're for that purpose. They're not for us. They're for them. And they continue to grow and develop and evolve in such a way that it helps take them from where they are to where they, they need to be. Dr. James T. Brown, CSP, PhD, PMP, OMG, worked for the National Aeronautical Space Association for 16 years, was named Engineer of the Year by the Cape Canaveral Technical Society and received the NASA Public Service Medal for his exceptional contribution to NASA's mission. He has a patent for his project scheduling methodology and the majority of his speaking business is focused on training. Let's talk training with Dr. James T. Brown. So James, your first experience as a trainer was training a topic that you did not like. Correct. And you were reluctant to do it because you didn't like the topic, but you found that you loved the training aspect of it. Uh, I love the training aspects aspect of it because we took a train of trainers class because they basically had a group of employees together that had never trained. And then when they started teaching the aspects of what it takes to be a good trainer, and I started looking at it from that point of view, it kind of intrigued me. And so then when we actually got to go out and do it, I found out that I was kind of good at it. And then I said, if I can do this for diversity training and deal with all the issues in that, then the training in the field I love should be a breeze. So what did they teach you about what it takes to be a great trainer? Uh, one of the things was to pay attention to the audience. One of the things that they said that was that if you can train people 
then you can lead them because you have to be able to read body language, pay attention. And obviously with diversity training, especially with some groups, you have to pay attention. Is there going to be hostile behavior? So you're constantly reading and looking at the body language of the participants to see where you need to go. What year were you doing the diversity training? Oh, that was probably uh, 96, 97. All right, so a somewhat different environment. Uh, very very different, different environment that there was a lot of stress because the training was also mandated. It wasn't necessarily like these employees showed up happy to be there. So, you know, we, we had everything from people facing the back to people refusing to talk, to sure. pe- you know, all those well, kinds of It was almost punitive for them to even be there. Correct. And so you ha- we had to deal with those issues. So, you know, dealing with all of that made all the other classroom things I've dealt with since a, a piece of cake. What percentage of your business is based on training now? Uh, about 80% of my business is based on training. What are the attributes? For me, the attributes of a great trainer are to be able to know what the client needs. In other words, the training I do is not necessarily out of the box. It's being able to go in and talk to the client, find out what kind of challenges that they face. Once I understand those challenges, then I craft a custom-tailored course based on those challenges. And when I say custom-tailored, not just putting their logo on my slides, I mean that it addresses those challenges through the exercises, through all of that, so that when I'm in front of the training class and I'm reading also where they want to go because I'll vector if that's not what's providing value. Okay, but the rest of us are not engineers, James. You said vector. What, <laughs> what, what, is that, what does vector mean? I will change direction oh, of the course. Okay. In other right. words, if... If we're going down a path and it's not providing value, then I'm going to change direction of or the course. Or vector. Right, or vector. So I want to make sure that I, I provide that when the participants lead, that they got what they needed from the course so they can go and execute and do a better job better. So, and Do you have any measurement? How do you measure the effectiveness of your training? I, I don't really have a measurement. Uh, I have a form that I got from NSA uh, at some point in a, in a chapter meeting, but the basically two questions on there that I use, you know, what challenges, I mean, what will you use first? All right, and I take all of the summation of what you, they will use first and compare that with the objectives that we originally had for the class and see where that is. And the other question I ask, what are your greatest management challenges? So those two things I look at and see how well did we address what we were going to do. But it's not a, a metric per se or a measurement per se. And, and when I say that, I also have to say that I don't think that there is one. I mean, if you look at ASTD and all these organizations that they want to come out with some number that says this was a good training class or whatever, I don't think that that necessarily exists. You know, from my belief that uh, the people have to leave motivated to do what you've taught, but usually at the end of the day when I ask people in a training class what their takeaway is, if I have 25 people in the room, I usually have 20 different things. Because when you're training people that know with varying levels of experience, they all take away something different. It's no different than being at an NSA conference. We all heard the same presentation, but when we walk out, you might have everybody has a little different takeaway based on the context of what they do and what their job is. And so I don't get hung up on trying to necessarily measure. And I say that I don't, but clients do. (laughs) And so that's one of the struggles I have is how do I communicate value to a client when they are looking for oh, they could do this at this proficiency level, and now they want to be able, they can do it at this proficiency level now that the training class is over. And in the kind of training I do uh, for project managers, you know, if they make a good decision, it might save millions of dollars. If they make a poor decision, then it, it might cost millions of dollars. But I can't say that they would or would not make that decision based on the training. So when they come into your course, is there, do you establish any kind of base level of competency? I establish no base level of competency. Usually the groups that I have are mixed. Usually I have 
very senior people, people that have done it for years and years, and then there may be some very junior people. And part of what I do is to also foster the relationships between those two parties so that they will talk to each other and ask questions after the training class is over. So I have to be able to communicate knowledge and run an environment in a way where the senior person thinks it's valuable and also the junior person is not overwhelmed and also thinks it's valuable. What are some common mistakes that trainers make? Too technical, too many acronyms. The common mistake I make is I go too fast. All right, I have to slow myself down. And my common mistake is this. Now that I'm much older or older, I assume people know things that they don't know. Such as? Such as the, the basics of dealing with people, the basics of the importance of relationship building, the, the basics of anything. You know, we forget that when we are 24, 25 years old or we just got into the work environment, just a lot of the basic things that we take for granted in any field, the younger people don't necessarily know those things. So that's one of the, when you have a diversified audience, it's a challenge, though, to meet the needs of both your senior level people and then some of the younger people. How do you bridge that gap between things that would seem so obvious to the, to the more experienced people and things that the, the younger people in your audience need to know? By, I guess, designing the course in a way that the, the older people in the course tell the younger people, and it's not me as the instructor telling the younger people. So I create an exercise or an activity that requires either brainstorming or a decision or a discussion so that the experience is shared between the older people and the younger people, and then I can comment on that. But I am not always the one, and I try not to always be the one directing that experience. I want that to come from the class itself. And when I have those experiences in people in the class, then that allows them to add value and contribute. And a lot of times they don't always have the same opinion, so then that also adds an interest factor into what is being taught. So you're, you're part trainer, and you're, but you're also part facilitator then in that situation. Well, I, I guess then you've either led me to where you wanted me to go or I, I don't know. But, yes, I think training is facilitation. It's not just telling. It's about creating an environment where the people learn from each other and from you. And I've long since gotten over the fact that, you know, if there are 25 people in the room, odds are I might not be in the top half of being the smartest, but I do have to get those smart people to contribute in a way that allows everyone to learn from each other. Well, James, you seem to be very passionate about the training and seem to really enjoy it. What do you love most about the training environment? The opportunity to get direct feedback from participants. You know, if you're given a keynote, then the feedback process is a lot different than it is if you're doing a training event. In a training event, I have more eye-to-eye, one-on-one, look-at-people contact than I do in a, in a keynote. And so for me, that's what I like. I, I like the fact that you can give people the opportunity to better their situation and what they have to deal with on a daily basis. We talked a moment ago about train, training slash facilitating. It, it seems like the training and the facilitating you do is much more of a collaborative effort than a keynote would be. You know, keynote, you're standing up there speaking to the audience. In your role as a trainer, you're collaborating, collaborating with your audience. You're drawing on, this, uh, on the collective wisdom of the participants. How do you, when, is that something you just do on the fly, or do you know anything in advance when you go in? What, what kind of pre-work do you do to prepare for a training session? Meeting with the client, understanding who is going to be there. I, the strangest situation I had, I, I did a leadership course for 25 people, but the course was really for one person. I have a long-standing client that came to me and say, we, we have this big project. It's going not as good as we'd like because we have this one person that needs some work well and play well with others lessons. And so we designed a course for two days where everybody participated, but my private outcome with the client was this person has to get it. Okay, And the course was designed around 
exercises created around the skills that this person needed, and it, it went well. And so when I look at that, you know, meeting with the client, finding out who's going to be there, what their outcomes want to be from a skill point of view or, or what their challenges are, that's the way I address the the lesson. James, you touched on a great point. Oftentimes, speakers and trainers get faked out by the evaluation forms of the participants. It isn't always the participant's opinion that matters. It's making sure that your client's needs are met. And in this case, they, they pulled 25 people together just to address one individual. Have you ever been in a situation where you were unclear about the desired outcome? Sometimes you are unclear because sometimes the client doesn't want to tell you that they have problems or challenges. You know, are they they don't even know what problems or challenges that they have. And so in that case, I might have a generic structure of a course, but early in that course, I will brainstorm, I will have some activity that brainstorms challenges or problems. And then when I see those from the participants, then that allows me to change direction into where the class needs to go. All right, NSA, time to get pegged. The professional expert group or pegs are one of the greatest values of your NSA membership. Next to VOE, of course. In terms of what you get for what it costs, there's no better investment you can make. This year, we're going to be highlighting one or two pegs per VOE edition. There are 12 pegs total, and you can learn more about them all by visiting the NSA website. Now here's Alan Carr to talk to us about the EPEG. Hi, I'm Alan Carl, and I'm the chair of the EPEG. We are the social media and e-learning peg for the NSA. And let me tell you, this is not a group for social media experts. In fact, what we are is we're a group of people who want to learn, use, and leverage social media to increase and enhance our speaking business. So whether you're using social media or not, you want to be involved in the EPEG because whether you like it or not, social media is a fact of life and a fact of business. So perhaps you're confused about whether you should be using Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, whether you should be blogging, LinkedIn, and Gosh, by the time this recording out, comes out, there will be another social media that will be the buzz and talk of the town. So how can you stay up and aware? By networking with the other members at the EPEG. We have a fantastic lineup of PEGcasts for 2012 and 2013. We are the only PEG at this point to have our own blog because we do believe in social media. Last year had an amazing group of social media experts speak on our teleseminars and PEGcasts. People like Gina Shrek. David Newman, Jay Bear, and for 2012 and 2013, we are going to kill it with great content. And let's face it, we all need to learn and use social media. So be sure as you're going through your membership next year to sign up, sign up for all the pegs, but be sure to check the EPEG, the social media peg. This next segment is called Book Publisher's Perspective, and in it we'll explore the world of publishing and see what, if any, lessons speakers can learn from publishers. I'm Justin Branch. I'm the senior consultant with Greenleaf Book Group. Justin, how many titles has Greenleaf published? A lot. Um, we produce, we publish about, on our Greenleaf Book Group press and print, about 80 titles per year. So a lot, I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, compared to Random House, that's a small Sure. Amount, so, but, but, but you've probably done over 1,000 titles. Then. Oh, easily, yeah. Sure. And to, uh, to get to 80 a year, how many 
proposals? How many pitches do you receive? Yeah. Well, we take about 3% of what comes in. So we go through a whole lot of proposals. So thousands a year we'll be pouring through to get to the few that we actually move forward on. You only move forward with 3% of the proposals you receive? 3% of the proposals. Okay. So what separates, what distinguishes a 3% from the rest? Well, we look for a number of things. So it's not just the book because usually a book is part of something much, much bigger. So we kind of look at the content because at the end of the day, the book has to be able to stand on its own. But we're looking at the author. We're looking at the platform. We're looking at the audience for the book. We're looking at the genre to see how people are doing, how people are responding to it right now. So all of that kind of ties together. And and it's not uncommon. We'll have one person that has a lot of the things we like in one bucket, and the other bucket is almost empty. So then it's a matter of saying, okay, well, if we really like these pieces, and that's some, those, those are things that we can't fix. If it's really compelling content, it's a good space, but the platform's not there, we can build a platform. We can do some of these different things. So it's a matter of kind of figuring out which things can we fix and which things can we not. And if we can get a book to, to, to stand out when there's there's actually 50,000 books published a week right now. I don't know if you had heard that before. but 50,000? 50, 50,000 a week. I had not heard that. Yeah. It's insane how many books. Now, not all of those books are probably going to be on bookstore shelves. In fact, most of them won't. It's a good time to be an author because you have more access now to your readers than you ever have before. You don't have to fit everything through the filter of a traditional publisher. That said, not every book, the books that we're looking for, are books that are going to be kind of a more of a mainstream, a a bookstore type of of book. So we're looking for books that kind of have as many of the things that we can't fix ready to go, and the things that we can fix, we'll figure out a strategy and and push them out. All right, so what I thought would be particularly relevant to our listeners is if you could talk about how in the pitch process, how someone distinguishes themselves. I think it's probably analogous to a speaker pitching a program to a client. Mm -hmm. You know, in in this case, they happen to be pitching a book but there are probably some similarities to pitching a program. Yeah, it's very similar. And in fact, if you kind of take that mindset, you're in a much, much better place. Again, just like the, the, the market for speaking is incredibly competitive, everybody's vying for you know a certain amount of available spots. The same thing is true here, that you've got a, a, a short opportunity to show where your expertise is, show your credibility in that space, differentiate yourself. Again, it needs to be in a space that, that people think that there's going to be a market for. So most nonfiction is, is kind of pain point driven. So at a certain point, an author's name is what carrying carries them. So if you want a marketing book, you might buy Seth Godin because you know it's Seth Godin. But before you get to that point, typically it's pain point driven. So people are going to the bookstore looking for solutions to specific problems. So we would look at it like anything and say, okay, well, what are you fixing? What are you addressing here? And if that's a problem that people go to books for, then okay, all right, we're, we're a step closer here. Once we find out, okay, you're in the right space, well, how are you going to be different from the other 10,000 books that were written last year on this exact same topic. And that's where they can kind of take what's made them work, their, their speaking uh, world work, and kind of translate that into a book and say, well, this is how I'm going to differ. This is how I'm going to stand out. This is the angle I'm going to take on this problem. And those are the kind of things that a publisher will get excited about. Obviously, the next thing you're going to look at, if not the first thing you're going to look at, is going to be that platform as well. And so if, if we know that you have a built-in audience because you're speaking a certain number of times a year, 
we know that essentially platform usually is kind of defined as the, the, the people who know who you are and, and kind of care what you have to say. So if you have a group of people, if they're subscribing to your, your newsletter or whatever it is, that's great red meat for any publisher. Because they look and say, wow, this is great. Okay, you got good content and probably people are going to buy it. So you've, you've checked off a lot of things off my list right now. So if you can kind of lead with that stuff, you don't have to go into great detail. But if you can demonstrate that that's there, you're going to get their attention and they'll keep them reading. So take us through the pitch process. What are you looking for in the pitch when, when being pitched? Okay. Quick is always kind of nice, you know, get or get to get to some good stuff fast. What is the book about and how is it different? Uh, get into that platform pretty fast because, it, again, it kind of shows that you're bringing an audience to the table as well built in. Those are kind of some of the first things that you want to see. They'll kind of usually dig in a little bit deeper. If it's a verbal pitch like this where you're just kind of talking, you're throwing out an idea, they'll kind of dig in where they see the interest there. If it's a, if it's a written pitch, there's more of a, a formula to it to, to kind of spelling that out. So we've been talking a lot about the pitch and the effective pitch being uh, concise, getting to the, you know, to the meat of the matter quickly, establishing that there's a platform, an audience for the message. These are all things that speakers have to do with, uh, with, with any delivery me- mechanism of their message, whether it's a meeting planner or a company and such. Uh, any examples of people who've done this really well? Yeah. And, and I think even to that, and I want to jump into that because it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. And I think what's nice is, is you can actually ask other questions before you even do this. So you may or may not want to work with a traditional publisher on a book. Uh, you may or may not want to work with a self-publisher. You may or may not want to make this into a book at all. And, and what's nice is you have a ton of options now. It's, it's a better time to be an author now than ever before in a lot of ways because you have so many things you can do with your content. And that wasn't the case even just a few years ago. So I think usually the first question is, why am I doing this book? What do I want to accomplish with that book? And then you start thinking, okay, well, who can get me there? Who can get me closest to where I want to be with it? Is it a self-publisher? Is it a traditional publisher? Is it something kind of in the middle somewhere? Once you kind of figure that out, then you can start saying, okay, well, how do I approach them? What's going to be important to them? Because if you're not just straight self-publishing it, where you're just paying someone to kind of do whatever it is that they do, then uh, they're going to want to be they're going to be looking for specific things. So when you're when you're pitching them, you think about it. Okay, well, if I'm pitching Random House, what's going to be really important to them? If I'm pitching Greenleaf, what's going to be important to them? If it's a self-published book. You know, it's more of a matter of, okay, well, how do I make sure that, because I'm doing this on my own at this point, how am I going to at least get some people around me that will help me make good decisions so I have a product that will get me to where I want to go. So that's kind of the first step of it. As far as, what was it, repeat the question. No idea what I was talking about. I don't either. It was good. (laughs) I think I just answered a question that you didn't even ask. (laughs) And that was a great question, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, you talk about pitching. Who has pitched extraordinarily well? Any examples of someone who was like, you know, that if any prototype, you know, if you could, if everybody pitched the way this individual pitched, right? Maybe, yeah, God, that's a that's a great question. Everyone has the kind of their own unique hook, and I think anytime someone kind of differentiates themselves, it, it's going to be great. So some great examples of, of people here would be people like, you know, Steve Spangler. Obviously, he's got such he's he's got such a unique way of doing things. And with this book, we knew that we needed to do something different. And what was really cool is that Steve knows his audience very, very well. And he knows what they like about him. They know, he knows what they connect with. Now, is his book the one when you open the cover, flames shoot out of yes, it? Yes, exactly. Like yes, yeah. And, you know, the lawsuits on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but Steve knows his audience. And what's interesting about that, that category before we came out with his, with his two books uh, were that 
there was really nothing else there like that. Books that were kind of sciency related for that audience were usually one color interiors. There weren't there were no photographs or anything like that. There was line art for it. And Steve really had a clear vision of what he wanted. He kind of used a cookbook in a lot of ways as a model of, I want people to really see what they're going to be doing here. I want them to have an experience when they flip through it, but I want it to look nice and classy. Bookstores uh, hadn't seen something like that, which is a danger sometimes. But, you know, in this case, we looked at it and Steve said, I have a clear picture of what I like. So we said, okay, well, knowing what we know about the book industry and what you know about your audience, how do we work together to kind of craft something that will be acceptable for the book industry and and uh, exciting for your audience. And that's what ultimately ended up happening and, and working out very well. So in his case, a really clear understanding of what people like about him and what they want is is great to hear. He has he he understands his audience and allows us to kind of figure. Okay, let's take that and, and put it into publishing world. Any memorable colossal flops? <laughs> um, like memorable colossal flops. Yeah, there, I mean, there's always going to be colossal flops. And, and you know, it, the reality of the industry is that when there's that many books published, some are going to work and a lot aren't. And, and you have the ability to control maybe 30% of the variables. And that's a completely made-up statistic. But, but, but that's about, I mean, it's a small percentage. There's more that's outside of your control than, than within your control. So what we try to do is make sure anything you can control is knock your socks off great. So whether it's packaging, editing, your strategy for your platform, your marketing, any of that kind of stuff, we're going to do the best we possibly can on those things because there's going to be a lot of stuff that you can't control, like luck and and what other publishers are going to be putting out, what the conversation is in the media at that particular time. So, so Justin, take what you just said and make the connection to the speaker's business in general. Is is it fair to say that within the overall business structure of a speaker, there are things that are completely outside of their control? Yeah. And then there's a percentage of things that they can have an impact on. Yeah, and if you can impact it positively, then you know you've done everything possible to give it the best shot. And sometimes it's going to work out, sometimes it's not. But the best way to position yourself to be, quote-unquote, lucky is to make sure that anything you can control, you're very well prepared for, and you're really doing it exceptionally well. So surround yourself with good people who are going to be trying, that have the same goals with you to make sure that their piece of it is done exceptionally well. Do those things well, and then there's going to be books that are going to take off, and there's going to be books that are going to struggle. Usually at the beginning of the process, tweet out, try to figure out more goals for a book than let's try and sell a whole bunch of copies. Because while that's always going to be a goal, no matter what, who your publisher is, because of the nature of the industry, some books are going to sell a lot of copies and some books are not going to sell a lot of copies. But if we know on the front end you want to accomplish these other three things, you want to position yourself as an expert in a certain space, you want to be able to solidify your philosophies in a certain area over here, then we can kind of build it in so you know that no matter what, you're going to be hitting these goals over here. The sales piece, everyone's going to give it their best shot. But so there's more than one measurement of success for a book. Then. I think that there should be, you know, I think for anybody because of, you know, the nature of the industry. When you go into it, be thinking about four or five goals that you have for the book and make sure that those five goals are steering every one of your decisions from what kind of publisher you're going to work with to what the packaging's going to look like to the tone that you're going to take in the writing. So all of that matters. And now in a segment he likes to call the President's Message, which is fitting because he's your 2012-2013 NSA President. Please welcome Mr. President Ron Culberson. Thanks, Theo. Hi, I'm Ron Culberson, and I'm your humble and reasonably good-looking NSA president this year, and I'm both honored and excited to serve our organization in this capacity. Since many of you have no idea who I am and probably don't care, I'm not going to spend this first president's message talking about me. (laughs) Yeah, who am I kidding? Of course I am. It's the president's message, 
and I am the president. Who do you think I'm going to talk about? Neato? <laughs> no way. If, however, my kids were considering High Point University, that'd be an entirely different proposition. But for now, this message is all about me. Seriously, I thought it would be helpful to let you know a little bit about me as a way to set up the rest of my president's messages. Consider it like a trilogy, and this is the introduction, uh, except that this trilogy is really a tenology since there are 10 editions of VOE. So here's the deal. In high school, I was the class clown. But unfortunately, I was voted teacher's pet. It was quite a letdown and, and something I didn't totally work through until I got into therapy when I was 30. Luckily, I'm now over it. Even those, those idiots who chose my high school superlative had no idea what they're doing. I've gotten through it. While I was in high school, though, I got to write scripts for groups who held events, such as dances, bake sales, and the like. So I got my first opportunity to write humor, and God love him, the principal let me make these funny announcements over the intercom. Then I attended the University of Virginia, and once again, I got to write humor for the pep band and my fraternity. Our band was a joke band, not a real band. We did eight to ten halftime jokes and about current events, politics, and of course the opposing team. Once when we were playing Virginia Tech, our arch rival, the band announcer said, I'm sorry to interrupt this halftime program, but I have an announcement to make. Unfortunately, Virginia Tech's library burned down last night and both books were lost. <laughs> and one wasn't even colored in yet. <laughs> then we would form a picture on the field and play something like Disco Inferno. So you can see at a very early age, I was writing cutting edge, high quality humor. After college, as a pre-med student with a psychology degree, I had no hope of getting into med school. I went to grad school in social work, and then I did my thesis on the relationship between humor and depression. Essentially, I became an expert in the therapeutic benefits of humor. From there, a short presentation was born, and I, I began to present programs on humor to my fellow staff members and a few other organizations in the community. My first job out of grad school was in hospice care. I was a social worker, middle manager, and ultimately a senior manager responsible for customer service and quality improvement. It was there that I got to hone my craft because I did over 70 customer service training programs in the last year of that job. Simultaneously, I was speaking for free at the National Conference of My Professional Association, which at the time was the National Hospice Organization. As a result of being an MC for their annual awards program, and in addition to presenting several concurrent sessions each year at their convention, I got requests to speak all over the country. I was beginning to get requests. So in 1996, I left my job and started my speaking business. Initially, I tried to be all things to all people. Like many of you, I delivered 12 topics. I was the jack of all trades, but really wasn't the master of any. But eventually, I focused on humor, which, which actually was my expertise, considering I had done my graduate thesis on it. Over time, my program evolved, and I developed a concept called Do It Well, Make It Fun, which is my current brand, and the essence of how I've always approached my life and my work. Do the best possible job that I can, but have fun along the way. Today, I primarily deliver keynotes for mission-driven organizations, and my other passion is to write. So what does this have to do with NSA or my presence messages? Well, here's the deal. What I learned along the way was that it was important to know who I was and what I can do. Based on my education, my experience, and my gifts, I know that I can speak confidently about humor, leadership, and presentation skills. So that's what I chose to do. And I believe that my success comes from being congruent, not only with who I am, but what I know, rather than trying to do what sells or what others want me to be. That's the congruence part of it. 
For those of you who may feel you haven't found the bullseye for your content yet, or maybe those of you that have been doing the same thing for a long time and just wanna, wanna change or reinvent, the best thing I can tell you is to examine what you know to be true and what you can confidently claim as your expertise. I believe the more congruent we are, the more connected we become with our audiences. For me, I use humor as the delivery mechanism now, but my experience in leadership and hospice is the source of my content. And again, that's congruence for me. And that's what I know. I hope in some way it's helpful to you. Thank you, Mr. President. Great reminder about the spirit of Cavett. Thank you, too, to our featured guests who all embody the spirit of generosity. This idea that we get more by giving more is somewhat unique to our association. I know of no other place where seemingly direct competitors reveal their secrets in a genuine desire to help each other succeed. NSA comes from a place of abundance and contribution, and this tradition of lifting each other up has been a constant in our 40-year history. I'm grateful for the gift of NSA and grateful to connect with you through VOE. Be sure to check out the NSA VOE page on Facebook and let us know what you're thinking. Until next time, this is Theo Andros wishing you the very best. It won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.